Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. This morning I'd ask that you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as we continue to work our way through the book of Genesis, we'll be considering one verse this morning, perhaps in the opinion of some, the most important verse in the Bible, a verse that is ripe with truth, that sets the stage for everything else that is to come. But as you're turning there, I would ask you for just a moment to think about how you might summarize in one statement the history of the world. If you had to boil everything down that's happened from the beginning of time till now into one succinct statement, what would it be? Now, many of you know I've studied a lot of history. I have uh, two history degrees, have taught history in different contexts, and I've read a lot of different people that have attempted to try to summarize history, to try to provide one cohesive a strain of thought that summarizes everything that's happened to the present day. Philip and I were talking before the service about uh, his music history professors. And, and the music history professors, I don't know what that one cohesive statement would be. Philip doesn't seem to know either. The, they, uh, they might be all over the place. Um, another example of someone who did provide a, a cohesive statement, though we may take issue with it, was the philosopher Karl Marx. Karl Marx, the philosopher, of course, behind communism, said that all of history can be boiled down to a struggle between different classes of people to control the means of production. That's how he saw all of history unfolding. A struggle between classes of people to control the means of production. Now, I don't like to agree with Karl Marx on anything. But, I do think that he was headed somewhat in the right direction when he looked back through history and he saw history as a struggle and conflict between different groups of people. The difference would come because Marx saw the conflict centered around economic terms, economic issues, the the struggle over the production and control of goods and resources. Whereas the Bible tells us a very different story. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, which we're going to look at today, we are introduced to the fundamental struggle that will shape all of the rest of the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation and ultimately all of history. And that is the struggle between two different groups of people. The offspring or seed of the serpent And the offspring, or the seed of the woman. This verse enables us to make sense of everything else that follows it in the Bible and in all of history. It shows us the fundamental source of all conflict, but at the same time, it provides a remarkable promise. So if you are able this morning, I would ask that you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we read, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's once more come together in prayer. God, we come before you today already delighting in, rejoicing in the truth of the gospel, the wondrous mystery. Not that we had a Savior who came and died for us alone, but that we have a Savior who died for us and, praise the Lord, even now is alive. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that hope, we delight in that hope, and I pray that as we consider your word, this one verse from the book of Genesis, that we would See how all of these promises become yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The true and better Adam. The one who has come to seek and to save hellbound man. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your word's work in our hearts. And if there is someone here who has not yet trusted in the work of Jesus, who has not trusted in Jesus conquering and vanquishing of Satan and his crushing of the serpent's head through his work on the cross. I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that they would bow before you in humble submission and receive the gift of grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for those that have trusted in you, that we would rejoice to be reminded of the victory that we have through Jesus Christ. And that we would, as my brother prayed a moment ago, daily labor to crush Satan beneath our own feet when we are tempted and tried by our great enemy in this perpetual conflict that we are all a part of, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. So Lord, help us to see with clear eyes and hear with open ears and understand with faithful hearts what your word says. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This verse, Genesis 3.15, it's a short verse and it comes in the context, as we'll see more clearly next week, of the curses that God is pronouncing on all of creation, all of the created order, as a result of man's rebellion and the entrance of sin into his creation. But in the midst of these curses, again, we're going to look at all of these curses in a bit more detail next week, but in the midst of these curses, we find Genesis 3.15, which is not really a curse on creation. It is a pronouncement of judgment against Satan, the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve, and a promise of hope and redemption for Adam and Eve. This one remarkable promise through which we must interpret everything else. As I said, this is a continuation of God's address to the serpent, which he begins in verse 14. But whereas verse 14, which we didn't read, deals specifically with the serpent as a beast, as an animal, in verse 15, it's very clear that God is actually addressing something more than a snake in the grass. He is addressing our great enemy, Satan himself, the power, the tempter behind the serpent. The first thing that we see then that God pronounces in judgment and condemnation against Satan, against our adversary, the devil, 
is a holy hostility. The very first four words of verse 15 declare this holy hostility against the serpent. God addressing Satan says, I will put enmity or hostility, conflict. I will do this. He's telling the serpent that from now on, throughout all of the rest of human history, there will be a perpetual hostility between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And we'll see more specifically how that plays out in just a moment. But for now, we simply need to understand where this hostility comes from. And it's made very clear by these words from God that this hostility comes from God Himself. In one sense, we could say that the problems that arise in Eden do so because there isn't a holy hostility between man and the serpent. Adam and Eve see no reason to fear or mistrust what the serpent says. They needed a degree of holy hostility when the serpent addresses them and tempts them to rebel against God. They're willing to listen to the serpent, not to fear it or to flee from it. They don't understand that this creature is not one that should be listened to. It's not one that should be trusted. But God says here that will no longer be the case. It will be clear to everyone involved that Satan means to harm them, that Satan is our enemy. If you're a believer, then there ought to exist within you a holy hostility towards Satan and his schemes. There can be no neutrality in this equation. You are either on the side of the serpent or on the side of God. There's no neutrality. You must actively be fighting against Satan. As we just sung a few moments ago in the hymn, Faith is the victory. Against the foe in veils below, let all our strength be hurled. As Christians, this is our mission, this is our duty to wage war against Satan and his schemes. There is a holy hostility that exists between us. Because Satan is actively stalking about, the Bible tells us, seeking whom he may devour. Right now, our enemy, the devil, wants to devour you. And he's looking for weaknesses. We need to understand that. And understand that he is an enemy that deserves our holy hostility. Now some people may be uncomfortable with that. They may say, well, we're not really supposed to have hostility. Or we're not even, to put it in stronger terms, we're not really to hate anybody. Is there room for hatred in the life of a believer? Is there room for this kind of hostility? But again, look at what the text says. God himself says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This hostility comes from God Himself. And so if we don't have it, there's a problem. We need to understand Satan is our sworn enemy. He wants to destroy you with sin and temptation, just like he did Adam and Eve. He wants to wreck your relationship with God and with other people. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. And we need to recognize it and resist him. The fact that we are able to do that, the fact that we are able to recognize His schemes and resist Him, that is a precious gift from God that we need to make use of. Because that holy hostility may be what helps us to avoid sinning, to avoid these temptations. 
As we move on through this passage, though, we see how it is that this hostility is played out. It's going to be between, God says, the serpent and the woman and between his offspring and her offspring. So that means that it involves more than just Satan and Eve. It's going to be people that are themselves either following after Satan, perhaps even unwittingly, but nonetheless are aligned with his purposes and schemes. We see this in our second point, a history of violence. A history of violence. Throughout the Bible, there is a history, a very clear history of violence. And throughout the the history of the world, there is perpetual violence and conflict. Even now, there are forces in the world that are attempting to actively divide people. We see it in our own cultural context. People dividing generations, Gen X from Gen Z and boomers and millennials. We apply these labels and we designate the differences to divide. Our society continues to try to divide black from white, rich from poor, Republicans from Democrats. There's a culture of division. And that's also what Marx was attempting to do, to divide the classes along economic lines. But here in Scripture, we see that that division boils down really to only two groups. The seed of the woman, this holy and righteous line that's going to be following after God, and the seed of the serpent. We see this history of violence really picks up in the very next chapter. When we get into Genesis chapter 4, we're going to see this played out in the very first murder. The division begins to manifest itself. Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. In doing so, Cain acts like his father, the devil. While through his faithfulness, Abel demonstrates that he is a true seed of the woman. Someone that is following after God. Now this isn't just conjecture. Eve herself acknowledges this when she gives birth to another son, Seth. And says this in verse 25 of chapter 4. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Listen to what Eve is saying. Both Cain and Abel were her biological children. But she only acknowledges that Abel was her true offspring. Only Abel was the true seed of the woman because he was following after God. Cain is the murderer of Abel. She doesn't acknowledge him as being part of this same group. She sees Seth as the new offspring or seed. It's the same word. She uses the same word there in verse 25 as is used here in chapter 315. So Cain, though he was her biological son, was not part of the same group, the same seed of the woman group that Abel and Seth were. Later, this violence is going to continue to show itself. It happens throughout the book of Genesis, but perhaps most clearly it happens again when Pharaoh in Egypt attempts to murder all of the Hebrew children, all the Hebrew males. Indeed, Pharaoh says in Exodus that he wants to prevent the Hebrews, the Jews, from becoming strong and powerful and perhaps rising up and overthrowing 
his power. But the reality behind this impulse was a satanic attempt to kill the seed of the woman. Throughout this history of violence, we find that as we read through Scripture, often those that align with the serpent, that align themselves with Satan, find their heads unceremoniously crushed in. We see this several times in the book of Judges, for example. In the book of Judges, Sisera, who was a general, a commander that was an enemy of the people of God, he has a tent peg driven into his head by Jael, a faithful Jewish woman. In Judges chapter 9, a few chapters later, when Abimelech was oppressing the people of Israel and was about to burn down the inhabitants of a tower and kill them all, a woman, an unnamed woman, throws a millstone from the top of the tower and crushes Abimelech's head. Now, for the young men in here, you may hear that and you may think, well, those are cool stories. You know, those are the ones that's fun to read in Sunday school. You know, do have the coloring pictures and all that stuff. But in reality, these stories are more important reminders along the way of this history of violence between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the coming promise that the serpent will ultimately have his own head crushed in. Another episode in this history of violence ends up being the reason that Saul is chosen to be king over Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, we're told by Samuel why the people had requested Saul to be their king. There Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came up against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now, this character Nahash, king of the Ammonites, he was a violent and cruel king, an oppressor of God's people. When he conquered towns in Israel, he would take the men of the city and he would blind them. He would put out their eyes. And so this is a, a cruel oppressor, clearly aligned against God's people. But his name also has a special meaning. Does anybody want to take a stab, take a guess at what the word or the name Nahash means in Hebrew? It means serpent. And so literally what we have here in this verse is Samuel telling the people, and when you saw that the serpent, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. God's people was being oppressed by a cruel serpent. They recognized that they needed a serpent crusher. They needed someone to put this snake to death. The problem was, and Samuel condemns them, because the problem was they decided to take matters into their own hands. They said, we want to select our own king. We want to find our own serpent crusher. And Samuel tells them, the Lord your God was your king. The Lord your God would have provided you relief would have crushed the head of this serpent, but you chose a king on your own. They took matters into their own hands. Later, we know that Saul's successor was King David. God selects David to be the king. And when David comes onto the scene, he does so in a remarkable way. What's the the most famous story about King David before he ever assumes the throne as king? Goliath, right? All the kids know the story of David and Goliath. But the story of David and Goliath is so much more 
than a story about a child defeating a giant. See, when we read about Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, the author tells us that he is arrayed in bronze, scaly armor. The word, the Hebrew word for bronze sounds almost exactly like Nahash. And with the way the scales of his armor are described as overlapping scales, we see this picture of a giant man arrayed in snakeskin armor. A man that looks like a great dragon, a great snake. And when David kills him, how does he do it? With a sling and the 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 stone from the sling sinks into Goliath's head. And then David, the serpent-crushing king, cuts off Goliath's head. And so the story of David and Goliath then is a story about God's chosen king crushing the head of and decapitating this great serpent-like giant. We see these pictures over and over again throughout Scripture. But it doesn't end there. Even when we get to the New Testament, when John the Baptist comes, he looks at the Pharisees and he calls the Pharisees what? A brood of vipers. Jesus makes it even more clear when he confronts the Pharisees, he tells them that they are of their father, the devil. And so we see here that by the time the New Testament comes along, this wasn't just a clear-cut distinction between Jews and their enemies. These two groups aren't divided along biological and ethnic lines. The group is divided because remember Cain and Abel. They both came from the same mother and yet they belong to two different groups. And so the group is divided based on those that will follow God and His Word and those that follow Satan and his schemes. Those that are aligned with God and those that are aligned against God. This history of violence continues even today. Jesus tells us that as His followers, we should expect to experience similar persecutions. The seed of the serpent still seeks to do us harm. But the good news for us is that through Jesus, we have assured victory. Listen to how Paul ends his letters, letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he says the The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul tells us that it is under our feet. Satan's doom is sure. And it is God Himself. This is is what God envisioned for His people Israel when they said, no God, we'll do it on our own. We'll select our own king. It is God Himself, the God of peace, that will soon crush Satan But we are His instruments in accomplishing this victory. Under your feet. We ourselves can have victory day to day over Satan. It's what Paul is telling us in the the letter to Romans here. But how is this victory secured? How can can we... I'm, I'm not powerful. I'm not strong. I don't know any magic spells or anything like that. I don't have any superhuman power. How can I hope to accomplish this victory? How is it possible that Satan could be crushed under my feet? We're told how this victory is secured. All the way back in Genesis 3.15. 
We're told that it will only come through a hurt hero. One of the more interesting aspects of this verse is that the verse actually switches grammar halfway through. In the first half of the verse, God speaks about seed and offspring in the plural. The offspring of the woman, the multiple offspring, the seed of the serpent, the multiple offspring of the serpent. Countless multitudes that line up either within the camp of the seed of the woman or in the camp of the seed of the serpent. All humanity divided into these two groups. But in the second half of the verse, all of a sudden, the grammar changes. And the seed of the woman becomes one specific person. God says, He will crush your head, but you will bruise His heel. One heir that will be born. God tells us that the offspring will bruise the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. Now again, when we look at the Hebrew here, there's some disagreement about how to translate this verse because the word that's used for what the seed of the woman will do to the head of the serpent and the word that's used for what the serpent will do to the heel of the seed of the woman, they're the same word. They're the same word. So some translators will go in here and they'll, they'll change the degree of what's happening. They'll say, well, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent's only going to bruise his heel. The ESV, which I just read, which I'm using, uses the word bruise in both cases. The heel bruised, the head bruised. But you see, by using the same word, it seems that God is not wanting to distinguish between the actions that are taking place but by the location of the action. The serpent is crushed at the top of his body, at the top of his head. The sun at the bottom. Because a crushed head is fatal. A crushed heel is painful, but not fatal. And so our hero then will be wounded. He's going to suffer a blow, but it's not going to be the end for him. Ultimately, this statement is of course pointing us to Jesus. And his crushed head or bruised or, or his crushed heel or bruised heel, have you translate, is understood to be a reference to what he will endure on the cross. There the serpent will appear for a time to gain the victory over the promised seed that he'd been attempting to accomplish all along. What Satan had tried to do through Pharaoh in killing all the male children of Israel, what Herod had attempted to do by seeking to kill the Messiah, killing all the children, the male children, two and under in Bethlehem, Satan thinks he has finally accomplished on the cross. He's finally gotten the promised seed. He's finally killed him. I imagine Satan laughing maniacally, victoriously, when Jesus' body is placed in the tomb and the stone is rolled in place. He thinks, I've finally done it. I've finally gotten the upper hand over God. I've thwarted His plans. He probably thinks that He has conquered. I love the, the scene, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This is depicted incredibly well in the film, but when Jadis, the white witch, captures Aslan, Aslan goes and he gives himself in place of Edmund. To be sacrificed and the white witch and her minions strap him down and 
prepared to kill him there on the stone table. And she tells him mockingly, your sacrifice is not going to mean anything. Tomorrow I'm going to conquer all of your followers and without you there to lead them, victory will be mine. And she tells Aslan in this knowledge, despair and die. This is probably very close to what Satan's attitude was. As Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. He said, Son of God, despair and die. Your followers are going to be scattered. Already your disciples deny you. Already the rooster has crowed on Peter. I've gained the victory. Satan believes that he has won. But how easily he forgets Genesis 3.15. That it would be necessary for the son of the woman to suffer injury. But that injury would not be his undoing. On the third day, Satan's glee was turned to agony. His laughter to loud hisses. Because what he thought was a death blow was only the means by which his own defeat was accomplished. I'm sure that Satan listened with agony as Jesus invited Thomas to touch his hands and his feet. Two holes, snake bites in his heels. But though he had endured all the venom of Satan's ruthless anger, he rose from the dead. The stone that was placed over the tomb that Satan thought was the defeat of Jesus, the defeat of the Son of Woman, ultimately was rolled away. And as the stone was rolled away, the head of the serpent was crushed. His power was broken. Satan was now a conquered foe. The sin that had enslaved mankind since Eden had been paid for. But this, just, this doesn't just mean that Satan is defeated. This doesn't just simply mean, and of course if that was it, that would be enough. This doesn't just simply mean that Satan himself is defeated. It also means that all of his wicked works are beginning to be undone. Jesus undoes all the awful effects of his treachery. All of the curses that God pronounces against creation begin to get rolled back through the resurrection of Jesus. Say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells me so. What was the punishment? The punishment that was pronounced for eating the fruit of the tree, for rebelling against God. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Death. The wages of sin is death. What did Jesus say Satan had come to do? He had come to steal kill and destroy. He had come to bring death. The works of the serpent is death. But look at what 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26 says. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 
but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Adam, Paul tells us all die. Adam brought death by his rebellion. That was the effect. That was the consequence. That's not just the serpent. That's the effect of what the serpent did. But he tells us then that in Christ, the second Adam, the true and better Adam, death is undone. The effects of the serpent's work is undone. It is rolled back. Death's power is broken. Where, O death, is thy sting? Death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. And so, yes, we must endure death even now. Yes, all of us in this room, if Jesus doesn't come back in a hundred years, all of us are going to be dead. Death is a reality for every single person that has ever drawn breath. But Jesus Christ, through His resurrection, has already broken its power and it will be the last enemy to be destroyed, but it will be destroyed. And all those that it has claimed that have trusted in Christ will be set free to eternal life. And where do those enemies go? Where does death go? Where do the powers, where do the principalities, where do the authorities, all the minions of Satan, all the seeds of the serpent, where do they go? Paul tells us under his feet. Under his serpent crushing feet. Under that blessed heel that was wounded. All the enemies, the powers, the rulers and authorities, everything that has followed the serpent and its awful rebellion, death itself will be crushed under his feet. And if death is destroyed, church, that is good news for us because that means that all things that bring death too will be destroyed. Cancer will be destroyed. That terrible word will not be spoken in heaven but perhaps only to praise the King of glory who has put it to an end forever. Addictions will be destroyed. Lies will be destroyed. Paralysis will be destroyed. Disabilities will be done away with. And those that have suffered and been afflicted even now for so long in disabled bodies will be given new glorified bodies perfected by Jesus Christ. Down syndrome, autism, blindness, deafness, diabetes. Praise God, all these things will be no more in glory. Right now we have two babies in this church that's in the NICU who are fighting to gain strength. One's had multiple surgeries just this past week. All of these things. The fact that a newborn baby would have to be stitched up It's a result of Satan's wicked work. And it too will be put under the feet of Jesus when He brings healing and restoration and redemption. Everything that has gone wrong because of the serpent's work will be made right. Our sin-wrecked bodies, the sin-cursed earth, all of it will be placed under that blessed bruised heel. That is why Jesus Christ is the only hope of redemption. He is the only hope of salvation. 
total and complete victory over death and all of its various components ultimately will not be accomplished until Christ returns. But that does not mean that we cannot experience and rejoice in small victories, even here and now. I was talking to someone just before the service today about a loved one who was ill and how there's been a small improvement. And sometimes those improvements, they seem so small in the face of such adversity that we face. But yet we can rejoice in the small victories because they point us to, toward the greater and ultimate victory of fully resurrected and restored bodies, glorified bodies. It only comes through Jesus Christ, though. Maybe you need to come and submit your life to the one who broke sin's curse and offers you life. Maybe you realize that in this great battle, in this great conflict that has defined the history of the world, that you have been aligned with the serpent. And you need to renounce the serpent and join the side of Jesus. There is no neutrality here. Maybe you need to come and plead before God. Cry out for victory over the works of Satan. Jesus died so that we could have that victory. The final, the full victory will not be completed until the last enemy is destroyed and death is put under the feet of Jesus. But we can experience victory. Small victories, yes. And large. Here and now. Until the Lord returns because He has purchased it for us. And so today, I challenge you, if you have not trusted in Christ, do so today. If you are oppressed, if you are heavy laden by the serpent and by his schemes, come and plead for victory from Jesus Christ. If you want to thank him for his serpent crushing power, his victory that he accomplished on the cross, you can do that as well. But we cannot remain neutral. We cannot be indifferent to what Jesus has done for us in crushing the serpent's head. Let's pray. God, we come before you today thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our serpent-crushing hero. Lord, when I consider what he did for us, I realize that it was for my sin that he was wounded. It was for my rebellion that his heel was bruised. That it was pierced. But Lord, I, my heart overflows with joy to remember that He did not remain defeated and dead. Satan's seeming victory turned out to be a complete and utter defeat for our conquered foe. Lord, I thank you that through Jesus Christ, we can now have victory over Satan. We can now have victory over death. And though all of us here grieve the loss of loved ones that are no longer with us, we are reminded that when death is restored, the hope of eternal, resurrected, glorified life is there for all whose hope is in Jesus. I pray that that would be true of us today, each one of us, that our hope would be in Jesus. And if not, Lord, I pray that you'd break our hearts and bring us to repentance. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.